0: in general, are susceptible to this capture by elites. And unless the democracy is renewed by the non-elites every now and then rising up, the democracy will continue to move in this direction where power and wealth are more and more concentrated. All across the world, you now have this layer of oligarchs that use their money to buy political influence. Quand vous avez une concentration du capital trop forte, ça donne un pouvoir d'influence démesuré sur les médias, mais aussi sur le financement des campagnes politiques, sur le financement des partis politiques, qui pour eux sont les meilleurs mouvements possibles. Mais vous voyez que là, vous avez une logique de 1 dollar une voix ou un euro une voix qui s'oppose de façon frontale à la logique démocratique un homme une voix.
1: Welcome to renegading. When the economist Thomas Piketty released his book Capital in the 21st century, people clambered to get a copy. The filmmaker Justin Pemberton has since made the film. In it, he points hard to how rentier capitalism has disenfranchised the West. We caught up with the Kiwi director to understand what needs to change if we want 21st century capital to serve us, not enslave us. Justin, uh, really good to have you on Renegade Inc. Thank you. Uh, Congratulations on Capital. Uh, When did you start thinking about making a film uh, like that? Because it's a massive departure from your other work, isn't it?
2: Well, it is and it isn't. I've sort of been, um, I had done a documentary on um, inequality for New Zealand television uh, in 2013, which is when I got the book and read it, but I didn't really start thinking about this as a film. Um, At that point, I heard that a New Zealand producer was talking with Thomas, and that that was kind of um, the thing that made me go, "Ooh, who, who's directing this then?" And I knew they'd want a New Zealand director for finance, <laughs> so um, I I insisted, right. <laughs> you know, "I want to make this. I want to make this." Um, and and that was Matthew Metcalf. He said, "Just treat, write me a treatment and send it to Thomas, and if he likes it, so I did it in my weekends and in my evenings and on my commutes and just frantically." of writing a treatment to give to to Thomas and 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 and
1: luckily he liked it. Yeah and was uh, inequality really the driver because you'd made that film on inequality and you see what's going on in the world at the moment all the socio-economic indicators are going in the wrong direction was it the inequality bit that drove you to uh, push on and, and make this?
2: It's a kind of intersection of inequality and politics really I'd also, at the same time, I had just finished an interactive documentary series about the Five Eyes Alliance, which is the intelligence alliance between America, New Zealand, UK, Australia. Um, and yeah, I think it was certainly a, certainly the politics meets inequality. And I, that's what I liked about, about, about his book. That's what appealed. Um, this, this was in 2016 as well. So the world felt quite different back then. It actually felt a lot calmer than it does now. Right. Um, Donald Trump was, at that point, saying he was going to run for president, but it, it, most of the media saw that as a joke. And then, you know, through making the film, um, we finished it over a year before, before it came out. And it has slowly sort of started to become more and more true in some ways. But Thomas's idea right from the beginning that that capitalism is going to cycle back to 18th century levels of inequality... C'est la chose qui a capturé ma imagination. Et je pensais que c'était un film pour moi. Et j'ai aussi pensé que je n'ai jamais vu un film qui a dit « wealth across time
0: ». En Europe, la société du XVIIIe siècle est une société où le capital est vraiment concentré dans un petit groupe de personnes. L'aristocratie représente 1% de la population. Ce sont les frontières d'argent qui limitent la mobilité sociale. Et donc, le travail, les études ne permettent pas de monter très haut. On peut voir souvent dans la littérature, les films, la culture populaire, avec leur puissance évocatrice, l'importance du capital à travers l'histoire, he raconte une histoire qui est beaucoup plus sombre que cette vision idylique de la marche vers le
1: progrès, vers But when we then talk about the historical context, and because uh, we haven't spoken about wealth o- over the ages, or people haven't joined the dots, and quite deliberately, uh, because, you know, uh, it turns out elites don't want you to join those dots. Um, we, you're releasing this film uh, into the US now. Uh, And it's arguably the most advanced oligarchy in the world. Looking at what's going on in the US, your timing is kind of impeccable, isn't it? Yeah. The thing is, this is the
2: world that I could imagine when I was making the film. I just didn't expect it would arrive at the time the film came out. Right. So because there was the delay between us finishing the cut and it finally being ready for release, um, things sped up. Incredibly quickly. And you know, there's a scene towards the beginning of the film where Gillian Tett says, talks about, you know, when inequality, when the gap becomes too big and there's no social mobility, you tend to end up with a full blown revolution. And that's a tease, you know, in the film when we made it to a world that could be, you know, in the near future. But now it's starting to feel like it, it's heating up so fast that it's coming thick and
1: and quick. Really interesting bit uh, in the first half of the film, and you get to it very quickly. uh, You talk about land monopoly. And really it creates the foundation for the film because uh, implicit, uh, what you're saying is unless you solve land monopoly, all the socioeconomic indicators and the social justice indicators, if you like. are never going to go in the right direction, and you were very quick to put that right at the top of the film. Why did you want to uh, land that point so early?
2: I think that that's the thing that um, speaks most to, to younger generations, particularly, and it is actually the biggest consequence because you know, you know that owning land and having a property owning middle class was kind of the one thing that that, that sort of held the capitalism together after the wars. You know, the threat of communism was was, was massive, and people were starting to think, there's some great ideas. You know, free healthcare, free education, housing for everybody. These were appealing concepts, especially after you'd been through two world wars and the Great Depression. So I, I think that's the one thing that is slipping away that can't ever be gained again without some sort of a collapse. So it's either a, a complete housing collapse or a complete regulation of, of housing capital, or you know, full financial meltdown, banks, everything. So, you know, I, I think that's the most tangible thing for young people to think about: how do you buy a house now? And for me specifically, you know, I live in Auckland, which is one of the least affordable house- cities in the world. Right. Um, Funnily enough, they're all English colonies, you know, Hong Kong, Vancouver, Sydney, Auckland, Melbourne. Um, so, so it's very real. And I think, yeah, so I had a personal connection to it, too.
1: Um Bryce Edwards, one of your interview partners, he talks, uh, and you talk in the film about the brave new world. People wanted to leave the UK uh, and go to Australia, New Zealand and other places because they didn't want the uh, uh, steep alienating hierarchy that the British had created, i.e. the ruling class, Uh, So they went off uh, to uh, start again, start afresh. The irony, uh, you uh, and in Sydney (laughs) now have two of the hottest housing markets in the world. Um, The governments are populist governments who continually uh, pump uh, real estate. Scott Morrison is a real estate spruker, as they call them. Um, is Is that really ironic? You've actually recreated exactly the thing you were trying to escape.
2: Oh, totally. And then, then, you know, that's the case with with so much of what fails in terms of political action or political ideas, you know, French Revolution, the Occupy movement, you know, the new world. Um, It took a long time for it to fall apart in, in New Zealand, particularly. I mean, there was sort of a great social housing sort of system for a long time and houses were cheap. It absolutely... Turned in, in my country with, with uh, the neoliberal revolution and that's which the happened jo- is here that the, in the
1: mid-80s. Is that the John Key government? No, no, no. It actually,
2: believe it or not, it was a Labour government. We had this, we had a very strange sort of political system where Rob Muldoon, who was in the 70s and early 80s, was very much a dictator, but he was a conservative dictator and we had the most regulated economy outside of the communist bloc. Um, and strangely enough, the opposition was the Labour Party and they came in which was just everybody that wanted to get rid of this guy. And he had actually won elections without even um, having the majority of the public of, of the popular vote. So we changed our entire electoral system, everything, to get rid of this guy. Um, and sub- But suddenly, um, New Zealand became, the, much like Chile, a sort of neoliberal testing ground and everything. We had floated our currency, you know, we, we, the sort of interest rate sh- shock overnight. The, the stock market boomed. Real estate started to go off, um, and it, and it sort of continued through the '90s. Um, but much, yes, of course, it peaked with the John Key government. Well, actually, didn't because it's just peaked under this regime. Too. Right,
1: right. The
2: average house price in in Auckland is now a million dollars. That's a million New Zealand dollars, which is about half a half a million pounds. It's nothing like the income. The average income is sixty thousand New Zealand dollars, so about thirty thousand pounds.
1: We um, keep coming back to the land problem and land and banking because ultimately they're interrelated. The other uh, aspect um, that you cover in the film is the psychology around monopoly. Um, Monopoly originally was uh, invented to uh, talk about uh, Henry George, the progressive economist's ideas and and about privatising rent. Um, It was um, a woman called Lizzie Maggi who invented it originally to try and explain to people if you privatise rent, uh, ultimately, Uh, everyone goes bankrupt and society fails. You touch a bit on the psychology around it. Why did you want to explain to people uh, what happens when inequality arises around that monopoly board?
2: What I loved about his experiment, because the psychologist whose experiment it is um, teaches the psychology of inequality and he uses capital in the 21st century in his classes. The thing that I love about his experiment is it goes to show that there's something that fundamentally changes in people when they have more of something when you're ahead when you've got more it's like the the mind has to we believe in a just world basically most of us you know according to psychologists so there's a reason for it and it seems the mind starts to think that well it's because i'm better it's because of something great i've done um we have this fundamental attribution error where every success we have is because we're great and every every success somebody else has, well, that's probably luck. And it also flips on the opposite, where every failure I have is because of something else, external, but every failure you have is just because you're useless. You know, and 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 the way the mind works around inequality, I think, is so interesting. And for me, the reason to have it there in the film was because it sets up a, a degree of understanding for particularly tax havens and all those things that follow that, you know, why people feel that they don't need to contribute in the same way or follow the rules that, it, that everybody else has to. And, you know, the, the classic elite mindset, really.
1: So people say uh, human beings, well, it's just animal spirits. We're, we're designed like that and there's actually nothing you can do about it. You just have to go with it. Did you find a counter argument to that? Did you find that human beings are actually able to self-regulate uh, way more than than we do?
2: I don't think self-regulate no <laughs> I think that that's always been a failure and I know it's been tried and it's it's a very romantic idea. Um, I think that uh, you know studies have shown specifically that it, it, nice people who get into power can change over o- overnight and and start to become uh, have a sense of superiority and and belief that they're better and that they don't need to to follow everything but but we have found, particularly with capital, that capital does respond quite well to regulation. Capital is, you know, it isn't something for so mystical. But, for example, if you, if you tax pollution, capital doesn't want to invest in polluting things because it's, you know, it's, it's that basic. It's, 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 it, the, I guess the animal instinct, the really simplistic chimp mind is capital in that sense. People, of course, are something else because we, we're very good at at changing our realities to suit the world that we want to see rather than the world that is. Um, so I guess for me, I, the, the biggest thing that, that came out was this idea that there are many different kinds of capitalism. We have kind of definitely taken one sort, but there have been different times when capitalisms produced different results. Definitely don't think that you can go back in time and go, we just need to do what's been done in the past. But I think what the past shows you is that there are perhaps other ways to look at how to to work with capital and 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 it does when you change that relationship it has massive outcome changes for everyone.
1: Justin, uh, in that first half we talk thematically about land really uh, uh, and the historical context and how from land monopoly a lot of our social ills uh, uh, stem, if you like. In this half I want to talk a little bit more about labour. Um, ultimately uh, what you're saying in the film is to liberate capital over the years, labour had to be suppressed. And you depict it really well. Why have politicians uh, and populist leaders gone so hard to smash unions uh, and break labor down?
2: The most simple answer, I think, is because they've been captured by the mindset of of an elite. Uh, You know, they're not really thinking of the interests of everyday people. Um, And that's the problem with capital and politics. You know, the the lobbying power is um, a complete distortion of democracy. And you know, if you're thinking about something like tax havens, you, the only argument for why they exist is because rich people, wealthy people, like them, and 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 they prevail on governments and politicians to keep them. I mean, uh, I, one of the things I was most excited about was finding in the research that you know there are such simple solutions, there are ways to 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 eradicate them and to capture tax, it's particularly in the digital economy. You know, um, but the will is not there, and I think that that is. That is why politicians have lost their focus on labor.
3: You finally figure out that you can expand your own factory by kind of selling stuff, keeping the profits, then reinvesting those profits in expanding your factory. And that's kind of what capitalism in its modern form really lets us do is that capital becomes this thing that can kind of perpetually expand. But the gap between wages and productivity is substantial, and you have these kind of feudal legacies of labor persisting very, very late into the game. British master and servant law meant that it was a crime for you to quit your employer without permission. And, you know, this is getting actively used in the mid-19th century, during like the heyday of capitalism in England, most advanced country in the world, and they are throwing workers in jail, and they're being beaten because it's a crime to go on strike.
1: So um, when it comes to um, the uh, the suppression of labour, what we have now is uh, what Alan Greenspan uh, called a optimum uh, um, uh, condition in labour, which is a very insecure, precarious uh, workplace and and a very insecure workforce. Conspiracy theorists would say, well, you know, the elites have always wanted this. They've actually exact got exactly what they want. But it isn't concerted conspiracy, is it? It's the way things have been structured. It's the way tax regimes have been structured, and it's way economies have been structured.
2: Absolutely. And the most amazing thing with Alan Greenspan is he was actually completely confused as to why wages weren't rising when unemployment was so low. And it actually goes to show that its model has been broken. And, you know, what broke it, I guess, is, is the gig economy. Is... You know the fact that by no longer having any kind of organised, sort of or or legislated laws around labour, by completely deregulating it and making it, you know, um, all against all. That's what's driven down wages and also kept people in a precarious position. You know, the precarious thing is something that I'm, again, particularly dear to me because I've been freelance nearly my whole working life. And I've known that, that this isn't a model that works unless you're getting a certain amount of income because otherwise you can never stop working. You never can get sick. You could never take a holiday and you certainly can't borrow any money and, and get a house. It's impossible when you're in a kind of gig economy environment and so it's kind of shocking to see how it's now been rolled out of, to taxi drivers and pizza delivery people. It's, um, it was That's was, it's one of the frightening developments I think that, that, that we've seen in the 21st century.
3: Essentially, what's happening is that you're getting an economy which is more and more productive, but where the gains of those productivity increases are going into the hands of a very small number of people. And where there is job growth is at the lower end of the spectrum, which is often low-paid, fairly unsatisfactory work. Our labour market is shifting more and more it classifies people as self-employed and what that means is that companies won't owe them holiday pay, won't owe them a pension and those individual workers have to make sure that they can look after themselves if they're sick, if they want to take a holiday
2: In you know a what When Piketty says that the future for capitalism is this highly unequal,
1: highly socially immobile future, it's already happening social change doesn't come from the political realm, it comes from the arts, it comes from society. Uh, films like yours lead the way, people uh, they start to put some light bulbs on, there's a gestation period and eventually uh, things that were seen to be absolutely you know, set in stone are socially totally and utterly distasteful and we make the necessary change. Is that how it works?
2: Unfortunately, yeah, I, I, it's one way it works. Um, the problem is there's a huge lag. It's, it, 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 I know that people don't find that the satisfying answer but absolutely one of the ways to get change happening is to start talking and start getting ideas spreading through uh, communities and, and, and eventually it filters through to politicians and policy.
1: You're a director. How do you get uh, that uh, bit of life in a timeline and then just cut the middle bit out and shunt those two bits together so you get film and then a load of social change shortly after?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess it's probably with a lot of capital
1: (laughs) (laughs) ironically got
2: the money you can you can start getting those messages out that's basically advertising and marketing isn't it if you have to cut out the money part
1: when um we i got to the end of the film um and i'd be interested to hear from the director's point of view on this that you 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 i think try really hard not to tell an audience what to do you're i think out of the school uh, of show don't tell um if you were to come to the end of the film, what, what is the one solution that you would like an audience to get to that you've presented, uh, which allows them to walk out of that cinema thinking about, well, actually, this is a way to go?
2: Well, the big thing that, that Piketty wants to get across is, the, is, the, is the, the damage of inheritance as an idea, and that ownership cannot be eternal and and that there should that there needs to be a way that it slowly is returned back to either the commons or to new new levels of ownership whatever so so the inheritance is the big one but really there's three for me the other one is money and politics don't mix that's a distortion of democracy so inheritance that the, the money in in politics and the other one is tax havens which is, you know, something we've heard a lot about, but there's been very little action on it, and I think it's had very real consequences. And, you know, there's a point in the in the film where they talk about um, a news report that talks about how the amount of money that Ireland has let Apple off from in terms of its tax bill is more than three years' worth of austerity that they put on their own populations. And I think that, you know, simple ideas like that, are, it's not ethical behaviour. That's not right. And it's, you know countries robbing the tax base of other countries, you know, which is a a race to the bottom in which no one wins, you know. And certainly if you go to the tax havens, they're not rich, you know, the public.
1: Absolutely right. Mr Piketty says um, uh, towards the end of the film that the challenges of today uh, creating a more equal society are obviously different to those of the 20th century. Uh, But the important point is that it is not technically difficult uh, to enact change. Um, uh, it's primarily a political and intellectual challenge. Were you ever tempted uh, around the end of the film to really push at the audience the solutions that you've just come out with? Because yes, they're implicit in the film and you highlight the problems really well. Were you ever tempted to really uh, say at the end, you know what, these are the three areas that we really need to address?
2: I've become a little bit cynical watching films that do this uh, cliche kind of, here's the problem. Um, let's let's work through some ideas and then go. But don't worry, because here's the solutions. It's just something that for me never quite felt right. So I wanted to embed them in the, in there. So when we talk about the solution for tax havens, or even right at the beginning when he talks about the French Revolution failing, how you need um, public, edu- you need free education, you need healthcare, you need public transport. These things to really have equality. I do understand that they might be a bit light for some people want more to be told what to do but I guess that's one of the it's, it's one of those things isn't it um, different not everybody enjoys the the same kind of story and for me I just became a bit cynical about a collection of films that always got to the end and said don't worry here's the solutions and then you can walk out of the cinema with a big smile on your face and think, oh, all done. And and to a point, you know, I did think that an inconvenient truth did do that a bit. You know, at the end, it gave all these brilliant solutions like just turn off the charger on your cell phone when it's connected to the wall. You know, stupid things that really are not going to change the world. But people started thinking, oh, it's all right, I'm just recycling this and I'm, you know, turning off this light switch. Um, it's the problems are way, way, way more sort of systemic and um and and ingrained than than little individual actions like that. And I think that they kind of almost took away a little bit of the power of the film for me by being too packaged and sweet that here you go, all
1: done. And you have very much left the obligation with the audience, haven't you? Because implicit again in the film, what you've said is nobody else is looking after this. Because what happens in a credit-driven society when people can use all this money for escapism and holidays and clothes and uh, booze and all the rest of it, people think that other people, namely politicians, are looking after things. Turns out they're not. So you've put that obligation firmly back with the audience that actually they need to look after this.
2: Yeah, and and that's that's actually the point too because I really did want it to get people thinking and not necessarily feeling completely comfortable Um, I didn't want it to be depressing. I wanted it to be a little bit dark because that's what it is. And I guess there's something that made me want to stir people and have them feel that this is a bit urgent or isn't right. And, And that's hopefully what gets people talking and saying, have a look at this, see what you think, watch this story, and then, you know... It really is about getting a conversation going, and that was the idea. Um, so 20 years from now, hopefully, you
1: know, we'll have it sorted. That was my next question. Uh, two decades from now, if it, this piece is to have done one thing, what would you like it to be? And you're not allowed to say, it made you a million quid.
2: <laughs> no, 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 no And You know, I don't own the film. It's another one of the, Ironies of capital. There were so many ironies of capital in this film, the way that capital controlled the process. But um, it's really, it is about reforming democracy. Really, it is, which is part of getting rid of that power and and creating. It's essentially a more equal world with with equal. Opportunities, and, and I certainly don't mean that. I I think people like private property, and I think people do want to own things, and I know it's really important for people to also be able to leave something to people that they love. And I'm not saying that I don't think any of that's possible. I just think there needs to be a point to which you're taking the purse, and you know. And I look at was that Kylie Jenner, the one of the Jenner you know, rich Kardashian kids. Today I saw a story about how she spent over $200 million last year buying herself a plane and throwing this birthday party and blah, blah. That's that, the new word, the new term I keep hearing is morbidly wealthy. And I think that's a good (laughs) term to start using because there is something sick in that, you know?
1: That's that's the name of your next film.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's a good one.
1: Justin, congratulations on the film. Uh, Massive contribution. Um, It's wonderful. Uh, And thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much.